This podcast was recorded on June 26, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the new episode of The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today, we are privileged to have Barry Ritholtz from Ritholtz Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. So, I think the obvious question... And lady. Yeah, I think the obvious question to start, how did you land at a firm... Ritholtz Wealth Manager that has your name in it. It was just one of those coincidences. They were hiring. Uh, that's my name. So um, serendipitous. Serendipitous. Actually, so there's a very long version, a long version, and a, a medium long version. I'll, I'll stick with the the shortest one. I was working in a firm that was a hybrid BD RIA research firm that was quant- a quantitative research firm with the real technology side of it, we were trying to make institutional class quant tools available to the public at a reasonable price. And at the same time, I was getting a never-ending stream of inquiries. Hey, do me a favor. You seem to know what you're talking about. Take, take my money. Um, we, we came through the financial crisis about as well positioned as dumb luck will ever allow anyone to be. And on the other side of it, it was pretty clear that I had to figure out something on that side of it. And I met Josh at a conference like this. To That's not how he tells the story, but I'll, I'll let you hear that. So, so we're, we're sitting at a, a poolside at a conference in San Diego, two fat Jewish guys from Long Island, and it's a gray overcast day, like our luck. We go to, we go to San Diego, the only place in the world where you don't need a weatherman. There's just a sign that says, 75 and sunny, see you tomorrow. The day anchorman was right. Long, right? That's right. And so we're sitting out there chatting, and he's just cracking me up, and you know he's hilarious. Like, I think I have a wit, but he's just next level funny, and in ways relative to finance that are just so unexpected. And I'm just sitting there thinking the efficient market hypothesis is wrong. This is the classic two professors of economics walking on campus. One says, oh, look, a $100 bill on the floor. And the second one says, nonsense. If it was really a $100 bill, someone would have picked it up. He was the $100 bill. It's like, how has nobody scooped this guy up? He's smart. He understands markets. He understands the mind of the investor, the trader, the broker. He was, he was right there with that. And he's like, I'm like, how do you like being on the sell side? He's like, I hate it. I'd love to come to the buy side. Okay, let's find a way to, uh, to get you to join us. And so we chatted a little bit. It was pretty clear. It was a perfect fit. And he was working with us. And I don't know, maybe we're a month or two in it. He's like, why do you keep turning down these inquiries? I said, I'm, I'm doing X, Y, Z. I'm overwhelmed with it. I don't want to take assets from a client unless I can really devote a lot of attention. Well, what can I do to help? 
you can do a ton to help. And pretty much that was the launch of the firm internally. At the time, I would be going on CNBC railing about come for the um, high fees at, at all these various hedge funds, stay for the underperformance, and then I'd come back to the office to a memo that said, look, we have five new hedge funds on our platform. So the two trains were heading down perpendicular tracks eventually – there was going to be a collision when internally... We, so they weren't just non-parallel. They were truly perpendicular. Oh, they were absolutely perpendicular. And we knew there was going to be a horrible, messy crash. To his credit, and here's where Josh is, uh, has an expertise. He had run a firm with, I don't know how many, 100 guys in it for years. I said, we have to get out of here. A disaster is coming. And he said, do the math. We can't do it now. We have to get to X. And we were about $100 million when we hit the eject button and, and launched. And really, there's been no looking back since then. I'm curious as to how different his story is well, from that his story. Isn't the swipe left or right? right? Yeah, some about technology. <laughs> yeah, again, I'll, I'll let you uh, – that can get us another subscriber here. If you come and listen to the right. show, then you can hear the answer too. But um, – you know, this is like a, a psychiatrist session. We have a we have a doctor patient privilege mm-hmm. in here, except that we kind of reveal it to the world, uh, <laughs> you know, on the internet. Isn't right. That? So, two thousand. It's just between us and a few million listeners. Right. Yeah, and if we get to a few million, um, I'm going I'm to give you kudos. For okay. That. So, um, so I think you know, as I told the story to Josh about how you know the first time I got introduced to you was my curiosity of the internet, mm-hmm. and uh, happened to stumble across your blog. What got you into that medium? Because you already had this wide following audience at your firm and things. What oh no, no, no! This predates that by centuries. Oh. This uh, so I start out as a trader. I very quickly figure out. By the way, when I do that, I'm, I'm sure everybody at home is hating that. Um, I start out as a trader. I love trading. Maybe a little bit too much. I was yeah. looking for that vein. Yeah. Um, it was way too much fun. And at a certain point, I had kind of cobbled enough money together that I said. I can exit this side of the business and do something longer term. The ironic thing is, so I'm in, in the business 25, going on a million years. Every year, my holding period gets longer and longer and longer. I started out, if I held something for five minutes or a day, it was, you're on a desk. So your order's coming, you're executing, you're, you're making discretionary trades. And the longer I'm doing this, the lower my cost, the lower my taxes, the longer my holding period is. I don't want to say it's currently infinite, but... It's not that far off. And so from that to working as a market strategist was really the first job. I I started as a research assistant to this brilliant guy named Lawrence Hart, who was at a firm called Prime Charter, which is now Oppenheimer. And he really started me on a path of of research and, and a market strategist. But the amazing thing about that sort of gig is, and and I'm critical of this today, you see people who are strategists and there is no real repercussion for being right or wrong. Um, Barton Biggs is fond of saying, you know, if you're bullish and wrong, your clients are angry. But if you're bearish and wrong, they fire you. That's right. And so there's a very, very different headspace for what I now call the ministers without portfolio, the people who are out, the commentariat, the punditry. But anyway, to, to I digress. In the period of time where I'm a strategist, I worked for a number of firms, and the retail sales force was always, you'd give the morning meeting, here's what's going on, here's what we're watching, blah, blah, blah. And then 
a half a dozen guys always come up to you later in the day. Hey, what was the name of that stock you mentioned? What was the? And it was just annoying and <laughs> constantly being interrupted. So on this is how long ago this was on Yahoo GeoCities in the late nineties. I would basically take all the morning notes, the narrative, the stocks, the here are the data points that are coming out, and I would post it on that. Not that anyone in the world was looking at it, but everybody in the firm knew where to go, and so they didn't have to chase me down. I want to say that was 98. By 2000, and by the way, it would take a half hour to write that stuff and two hours to code it in HTML. This is, <laughs> this is before WYSIWYG. This is before Six Apart. This is before any of the blogging software. So around 01, we were headquartered. I mentioned in the presentation yesterday, we were headquartered in Two World Trade on the 29th floor. I'm in the Long Island office most of the time, as I was that day. And I get my head trader on the phone because his wife was freaking out after the first plane hit. She couldn't reach him. And for a half hour until the towers went down, he is giving me a running dialogue of everything that's happening. I write it up. I put it on, on GeoCities. And the next day, I show it to him. Is this okay? Yes. The next day, it just goes crazy viral. And at the time, I was interested in writing more. I had started. You do a little research. You want to learn how to write. You write more and you read good writing. That's how you become a better writer. So that was part of my motivation in, in blogging. On the strength of the two, that personal recollection of a day of horror discussion, I got invited to this newfangled blog software um, called Six Apart, who made TypePad, and that was 03. And that's when I had started really blogging about markets, finance, economy, human psychology, and investing in earnest. And I say this and no one really believes it, but it's the God's honest truth. I started writing for myself. I started writing because I wanted to be a better writer. And the only way you get to be a better writer is by writing more often. So I made a commitment to wake up a little earlier to just write for an hour every day. It wasn't like anybody was going to the site and reading it. It was other than me and my mother. Nobody really cared. And I started watching the... The, the page count. Yeah, the, it, everything started ticking up. And to the point where, gee, it's 100000 a day. How, how is this going on? By the time we hit the financial crisis, which I had been early and right, and not just opining, but... Here's the historical ratio between moderate median income and median home price. How is it for standard deviations away from norm? Either everybody's salary is doubling or home prices are coming down 20, 30, 40%. There's no other possible outcome. You know, the old joke, unsustainable things end when they can no longer be sustained. They can't stay unsustainable forever. Um, it's not like a Herb Stein quote. Yeah, like that. yeah, that's like exactly that, right. Which cannot go on forever will stop. Right, so and I'm mangling it. I'm, I'm totally just... I, I probably did too, but... No, you're much closer than I was. But in the middle of the financial crisis, it was 3 million plus um, page views a month. It was insane for an unknown guy... At that time, I was I was on TV pretty regularly. I was in the in print by oh six oh seven. I think I did the first Cudlow in oh three, Cudlow and Kramer, and then it was just the Cudlow show. And then you start getting tagged to do everything. I, I recall seeing you on a motion picture, and it was a Michael Moore film, which I've seen called Fahrenheit nine eleven. 
And I recalled a clip of you being in there. I remember that because I had just got on to reading your blog at the time. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I see your photo on there. And I thought, that's what the guy looks like? <laughs> I was very impressed. I, um, I did a bunch of the docu- I, documentaries, um, one about the Fed and one about the financial crisis. And I heard about the Michael Moore thing. And I'm only there for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I had I a Netflix it to see like, it. Oh, wow. I'm, someone said, oh, you're in the Michael Moore documentary. I'm like, for a millisecond. But uh, the uh, enough to gain prominence in the Sherman household. All right. Well, that was uh, uh, all of the all of the various documentaries. There was one called Broke. There was another one. Like you can't even remember. Is that the thirty for thirty about the NFL players? Nope, that wasn't that. But I was in the one that Steve Bannon produced. Ah, okay. And I did not know that I was a muse of Steve Bannon's until the New York Times a few months ago talked about the various Fed documentaries. And I think it's safe to say Bannon and I really don't share the same outlook or politics. I've read your blogs enough to know a little bit about your yeah. political leaders. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm, There's nothing wrong with I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up... In, in suburbia, I describe myself as, as socially progressive because at, with a strong libertarian streak, if you're a libertarian, you overlap dramatically with a lot of who is the government to say who can and can't use birth control, who can and can't get married. I mean, if you look at the list of government bans on interracial marriage, and uh, it's a liber- libertarian nightmare, although I don't fully agree with the full over. I, I do think that governments can do things like build infrastructure, pave roads, etc. That are a police department. Right, you know, right. Some, some hospital service. To me, if you take the libertarian argument too far, you get a libertarian paradise like Somalia. That's mm-hmm. a small government paradise. Hopefully, hopefully you have an assault rifle and AK. Right, Nice right. place to live. Right. So, 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 but on that front, I, I'd like to point out, though, too... I by the way, you have to feel free to jump in and interrupt me, otherwise okay. you won't get no, away. No, we like some one-sided things. Right. Uh, people, people add, the feedback is less Sherman and more guests. That's All right. So I, I get that same feedback on my podcast. <laughs> well, maybe one day we can return the favor. Absolutely. So, so the idea, though, that I think you're hitting on is that even though you have the political views, I noticed that you go... You, I wouldn't say you got out of your way, but you, you stress the point that one can't just simply invest on the political views. Oh, it's being so anti-administration or anti-the incumbency that you give up. The, and I think I think it's very important. Too. So there's a couple. Let's unpack a few pieces of that because it's really very important. First, and, and this is a caveat, but it, it, it's absolutely true. All presidents get too much credit for when things go right and too much blame for when things go wrong, unless they really screw up. In which case, I mean, you could give Nixon a little bit of blame for the malaise in the market in the late 70s. But, you know, you had the crash in 73, 74. You had Vietnam, which predated him. You had the oil embargo. I don't know how much credit or blame we could give to him. And the, and the same thing. Reagan probably gets too much credit for the booming market of the 80s. Clinton probably gets too much credit for the booming market of the 90s. If you want to give someone credit... Paul Volcker is the guy we should really be talking about. Well, I was always made a joke, you know, if if you want to get the economy booming again, we just need Al Gore to come through and create another internet. Um, Productivity. He didn't create the internet. He funded the DARPAnet. And the DARPAnet eventually became the internet. That's um, your history. I like to tee you up with these. Well, you know, I I endeavor to be fact-based. So, so... 
present politicians get too much credit, too much blame. Second, and this is important, so you guys weren't here for the presentation, but it doesn't matter because I skipped the slides on Obama and Bush. I, I have these four slides in, in this presentation, but I wanted to keep it close. And the first slide says, you know, in, in 2003, I spoke to all my New York hedge fund Democratic buddies who donate money to left of center causes, and they all said this trillion dollar tax cut from George Bush, it's going to blow out the deficit, it's not going to create jobs, it's a giant waste of time. Markets proceeded to rally 94% from the day the tax cuts were passed forward. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm misquoting this. It could have been Warren Buffett who said, give me a trillion dollars. I'll throw you a hell of a party. 94% is a pretty good party. Um, we know it ended in tears. We know what happened. But that doesn't rationalize missing a 94% equity move because you don't like the whoever's in the White House at that moment. Fast forward a few years to the March of, of 2009. You have a Kenyan socialist um, Muslim. Muslim in the White House. That's exactly right. Uh, markets are, you know, 666 on the S&P, 6,500 on the Dow. The spiral. And right, uh, the day of the low, uh, a famous Republican economist um, who, who uh, Michael Boskin, literally bottom ticked it. Dow, uh, President Obama destroying the Dow was the Wall Street Journal op-ed headline. And markets proceeded to go up 286%. Tripled. How, how can you excuse missing that? Because you think the occupant of the White House is a Muslim, Kenyan, socialist, whatever. It's inexcusable. And by the way, if you are an individual investor and you miss that sort of gain... You are never going to make that up yeah. for the rest of your life. Can, can we curse? Can we curse on this podcast? I don't know. We have. You can be we the first one to try it. You out. are fucked if you miss a three hundred percent gain. I want to give and, a shout out to my chief compliance officer, and deservedly so if you did it because of partisan, ideological, political reasons. Right. I have. Uh, so I've gone out of my way. And if now, you want to get in after the two hundred eighty-six percent gain, you can. But you're still. So far behind the eight ball, you better have really low blood pressure and really low cholesterol and live to 180 to make up for that loss. It'll take you a couple of generations to make up for missing a stock market that trips. missed the compound effect. I just want to let you know, though, the reason we missed yeah, this morning, we had car trouble on the way down here. There was a lot of red lights in front of us on mm -hmm. 405. So uh, they just didn't plan accordingly, yeah. I guess. So we get that. This was, la this was yesterday. Yes, you didn't, exactly. You didn't miss... Um, oh, this morning you missed Mobison. He's yeah. always fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I've read his stuff many times. So I, I think you're giving out all this advice on, on you know, kind of the behavioral aspects. What do, you, what do you think is one of the great leads for people to get into that kind of behavioral and the psychological effects of market? Everybody wants the hot tip. Everybody wants the, the hot tip. Um, but what's the what's the best thing to do to get into the psyche and, and learn about the way to manage your own emotions through the market? There's a few books out there. It depends on how deep a dive you want to Let's start cursory and let's go to the abyss. So, so man, that's, there's a lot of options here. Um, the first book I read, and it's a little dry and a little inside baseball is a Cornell professor named Thomas Gilovich, okay. How We Know What Isn't So. 
not a behavioral economic economist, but a pure psychologist, and goes through the process of, of all of the various psychological errors that are hardwired into us. Uh, the more accessible version of that book is called Predictably Irrational okay. by the author's name is on the tape, Dan Arley. Okay. So very accessible, very easy, not very long. Um, and if you find you enjoyed Predictably Irrational, there are a handful of books that you branch out to from there. Um, the uh, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Danny Kahneman is has become pretty much the, the go-to tome. Um, there's a I book. I like Thaler's Nudge, too. I like, I like that uh, one. Nudge is very... It's a different... It's idea. a very niche It's a way, it's a way to draw. Right, it's an application of it, and it's a little niche If you want to go academic with Thaler, then Winner's Curse okay. is the way to go for him. And his new book, which is really a bio... So sometimes people's personality just doesn't come out in print. He is a charming hilarious guy he is if Josh won a Nobel that you end up with Dick Thaler I mean it's it's he's that mischievous and amusing and he tells wonderful anecdotes and his new book I could see the cover with the birds and the one um, it, it's something about um, misunderstanding behavior whatever it is just look up Richard Thaler's most recent book that's a charming biology that is really a, a history of behavioral economics and, and how it developed, which makes it makes it so interesting. And there are there are a hundred um, other books. I would be remiss if I left out Jason Zweig's. I want to say it's the Investor's Brain or the Investor's Mind. Yeah, I still like enjoy that. reading him today. He, he's great. His stuff is is consistently. And he's, he's still one of those investigative types where yes. he wants to get to the heart of the matter. And, and he actually is enough of a reporter that he will dive into real recent news data and build a column around it as opposed to just pontificating the same ideas over and yeah, over Yeah, we mentioned people that personality doesn't always come up. And um, uh, last week we were at the uh, Fixed Income Animal Society in New York where mm-hmm. they had honored Jeffrey Gunlock with inducting him into the Hall I'm of Fame. not familiar with. Yeah. I'm so sorry? It's Fiazzi or something oh, okay. like that. Yeah. Um, the, the guy, no, no, the guy you named. The guy's Jeffrey yeah. Gunlock. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. He's got a couple of tweets out there. You can uh, go check it out. Oh, um, yeah. Gunlock Truth. I've seen, yeah, I've seen this. Gunlock, I think right. it is. Is yeah. that what it is? He's, he's, a, he's a rookie in the game. He's just been around a few he, But times. watch him. He's an up and Coming. Yeah, he, he's, he's definitely up for Rookie of the Year. Um, but um, what I found interesting there was Jim Grant, mm-hmm. who is just a very clever guy, a little wonky. He's very smart, intelligent, investigative right. type. And his personality really shined through the uh, introductory speech there. But you read Grant's Interrated Observer, it can be very dry, yeah. very verbose. But intellectual guy, another guy you can't. By the way, I, I give him kudos for being a perma bear forever. And in the spring of '09, Grant was yeah. one of the people who said, "Buy him here." Right. And um, I, I think he's he has a tendency to be too bearish before the financial crisis and more recently the past. But he nailed the bottom uh, in '09 as well as anybody. So, what what do you think is the key to your success out, outright, outright of luck? You mentioned just as luck. Luck happen. is important. Luck is important. I think a lot of that. That's good looks is are important. Okay. Yeah. I'm, sure. I, I, sure. I, I, we're working on those. For right. Still, we got time. Um, At least on my side of the table. Persistency is important. So, so being a little. Doug Cass calls it having a variant perception. You know, one of the you guys have a huge advantage. I feel being on, here on the left coast. Um, 
a lot of uh, so we just were talking about this the other day the when, lack of a snow season helps yeah but when you look at the arc of finance for a long time people came out of the same schools got the same graduate degrees went to the same training program worked for the same firms those people ended up selectively in the Wall Street Journal on CNBC uh, on Rue Kaiser it was a very narrow you know the gatekeeper era was full effect and then Sometime in the 90s, things began to change. Certainly the internet, which I think is going to be big one day. The internet opened up a lot of floodgates. If you look at the speaker list at this event, three quarters of the people who speak here, we've met virtually. Hey, we love your stuff. They're, they're guys, Morgan Housel, and we met Ben Carlson, who runs our institutional uh, division. We met him through the internet. So that was a game changer. I never met him in faith, but actually those are people I follow, and that's not yeah, to, to the, doubt your firm. The, this is, this is, there's a ton of folks like that. But so it's independent thinking, I think. You know, it's people that are, I, I don't know, maybe it's a connection I get from their own writings that I see, Well, it, but it, it, it feels genuine. It, oh, it's, it's absolutely sincere, and as Groucho said, once you can fake that, you got that made. But secondly, it's having a huge depth of understanding about a, either a broad or increasingly narrow, specific set of of topics. And it's the ability to communicate that in a way that the average investor or even the professional investor derives benefit from it. So, you know, we jokingly say, you know, I'm always reminded of the Seinfeld scene where the dry cleaner closes and they keep Kramer, Kramer left his shirt there. He's like, it was a scam. That's right. They came into town 40 years ago, set up dry cleaning just to close shop with your, your town, your, your shirt. Um, so the blogging thing started because I wanted to work on those skills, those muscles. And it incidentally led to a position where people said, oh, I know who this guy is. I know what his philosophy is. Take my money. In this business, when someone says, we don't need to meet you. Well, we'd like to. Well, but you live in New York and we're in California. Here's $2 million. It's a relatively rare thing. Take my money is a very important thing. I mean, that that's to me the utmost highest level of trust. Right. And, and I think that you could hide who you are for short periods of time, but 34,000 blog posts and countless radio, television, what you can't, if you're in can I say, hey, if you're an asshole, yeah. you can't hide that. If you're if you're corrupt, if you're philosophically, um, you know, Bernie Madoff didn't have a blog. I'm not suggesting that if he did, he wouldn't have taken. But he revealed just enough of himself to tempt people to give money. He never opened the kimono. We're pretty much an open kimono. To, and that, by the way, Josh, Mike, Ben, Tony, and our, everybody who writes publicly. Uh, it, it, philosophically, culturally, we're a pretty open book because in an age of distrust, in a post-Madoff era, again, I'd like to say this is all part of a brilliant plan, but it's not. We just intuited, hey, we really have to be open. It's the only way to do it. We have to reveal who we are. And you want to work with people you like. I mean, that's that's what people miss about this. We love, we love our clients. You guys are now so large, you don't know each and every one of your clients. You can't possibly. 
And one day we will get to that point where we don't know each and every one of our clients. But we're still success on that route. So, but we're still we're less than four years old. We work with a few hundred families. Our client, I'm I'm not blowing smoke. Our clients are great. Every time we go to a town and visit a bunch of clients, we come away like, holy cow, these people are amazing. It's really a fascinating, an unexpected joy of this business. And um, it'll be a little bittersweet when we get to the point where, gee, I don't know all our clients personally. I haven't had a meal with every one of them. That's what this is, by the way. <laughs> by the way, I, we're hitting the level where it's hard to know every employee. So when I come back... Really? Days, okay. Oh, my so, no, goodness. No, I have to go... You have 100 employees more, now? 202. Oh. I think as of today, maybe two more, two or four. Two more. Uh, or this week. That's amazing. Right. So, you, By the way, you guys, as long as we're, we're talking about this... You were one of the fastest firms to, to hit $50 billion, and you're just about $100 billion now, yeah, right? Yeah, about $110 billion. You, you guys are record-setting in that, and that's a – how do you find hiring people? So let me ask you this question. How challenging is it to find people who are a good – we have a great crew. It's, it's the most important thing, and that's – it is a people business, right? right. It is a people business. Totally. And the one thing that, you know, the team, I think, has shown over the years, it's loyalty, the camaraderie, is that you have to enjoy the people around you. So, in general, you've got to also know, is it a cultural fit? You can get the smartest person out right. there. Doesn't mean caustic and come in. It just doesn't work out. It's not a fit. So, so how? So we have fourteen people. We're going to end up adding a few more people this year. We agonize over every hire. How do you do that with two hundred people? You, you have to have it. You have to entrust it to people. You know, we spend a lot of time with interviews, and uh-huh. we, you know, people don't just get interviewed with one person and come in. Right. It's a you process. Know, we, we spend we spend a lot of time, and a lot of it is like yeah. For instance, uh, we hire you know someone that's going to do you know kind of mezzanine credit distressed investing. Right. What do I personally know about that? I'm a quant, I'm a macro guy. I don't know right. how to dissect the the fundamentals of these companies. That's not my business. Mm-hmm. So when we get in there, the guy's prepared. He's ready to meet with me. You can tell he's done the deep dive in the company. He's done you know he's done his homework on on the uh, on the uh, research project. And I'm like, I don't care about that. Tell me about tell your me, hobbies. Yeah, tell me what's going on. Tell me what you think about. How do you think? How do you think? What, what's going on in the world? Why okay, that company? Are you a macro person? Are you mm-hmm. not? Um, what inf- what informs your decision making? You know, what do you do on on the side? You know, what, what do you think is a successful career? What do you continue to want to do? I don't want someone to come in. I want to be an analyst. So I can be a senior analyst. So I can be a portfolio right. manager. So I can take your job one day. I want everyone <laughs> to be able to take the job one day. Right. right. That's the goal. But it's also there's a, there's a give and take, and I think we've done a very good job of it over the years. And what we find is that it's not just you know coworkers, but they're friends, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that shines to the business. Absolutely, you, you care so much about it. It's but, hard. It's really a challenge. By the way, uh, just an update. This is Barry Ritholtz running Jeffrey Sherman's podcast. <laughs> Let me ask you another question, right. Jeff. Sure. By the way, do you, do you have an issue when you interview people who do podcasts? Is it a battle over who gets to ask the questions? No. I mean, no. Uh, it, it's always fun. As you see, Sam hasn't even got one in yet. So I you're ahead of the curve. Go for it. Go. Well, I was saying. No, go, go, go. No, I was just kidding. Go I have a clock. That is pretty professional in that just now. So, I mean, if we talk about your podcast here. My, my what a disaster. Business. Let me tell you something hilarious about that. So there's a, a ton of great stories about it. Yeah. So yeah, it's a Jeff was the first 
Jeff, the up and comer I mentioned, Jeff yeah, Gunlock. The first uh, subscribers right here at the stable. Right. He was the first broadcast we did, mm-hmm. and I and now we're coming it's up on Masters in, Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. It's on iTunes, iCloud, SoundCloud, Overcast, where, wherever fine podcasts are, are found. And it's got an A rating from the health agency. Everybody loves it, and it's Bloomberg, so it's G rated. And it's interesting. I had Jesse Eisinger on the other day, and there was a big internal debate. His new book about the lack of prosecution following the financial crisis is called, quote, The Chicken Ship Club, which is a line that some guy named James Comey, now now ex-FBI director, then head of um, U.S. attorney for the Southern District, asked a room full of um, uh, prosecutors, how many of you ever lost a case? And uh, never lost the case. And all these hands go up and he says, you're members of the chicken shit club. You're only taking easy cases if you've never lost. It's a good way to think about risk. Right. So so being Bloomberg, we had a we spent a substantial amount of time figuring out what do we say instead of the S word. So it was chicken expletive, chicken bleep. And everybody went through something. And finally, I just said, how about just the chicken club? Oh, that works. And aside it's from, like a sandwich. Right. Aside it's a from that. different connotation. But, but so it's Bloomberg. So you can't curse. You can't do this. You can't do that. Every now and then, hilarious curses come out of people. And it's like, uh, we'll take care of that in, in post. But what I meant by horror show is I go back now occasionally and listen to episodes from the first year. And I am awful. Just it's first of all, I have no professional radio training. I am, as my wife will tell you repeatedly, a horrible listener. And there is a skill set between just reading questions. So we do a ton of prep work. We do a really deep dive on the question side. But the ability to hear what the person is saying and be able to respond to the question as opposed to just, I got to get to the next question. Next yeah. question. So it's so a general. We are right now. So we, we have zero experience. <laughs> right. Um, that's how I started. Again, you guys are doing okay if yeah, you have zero either, experience. Either of our wives, horrible listeners. That's right. right. That's right. Um, especially distilling the information right. and continue not to. You know the old joke. My, my wife says I'm a terrible listener or, or something, or something like, like that. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah. And and also we have a list of questions in front of us, but luckily we've asked none of them. So we still have a Well, that's my fault. Right. But that said, the no, I'm going to cut you off here. Go ahead. We are not on location at the Double Line offices where we typically do mm-hmm. these podcasts from. But you keep saying we're here, we're at this place. Right. So where we are is where the evidence-based investing conference, right. which was very interesting to me. Just the title, the hook is a, is a great, great sell on it. Why evidence-based investing? Explain to me what that means so, and why we care about so it. So this comes back to... The, the psychology we talked about earlier and the way people operate. The, the funny thing is when we announced the first one in New York last year, people said, wait, isn't all investing evidence-based? And the answer is not only is all of it not evidence-based, most of it is not. Very little of it is actually evidence-based, although we're clearly in a process of that changing. And so we wanted, listen, the world doesn't need another financial conference. It really, there, you could go to one a day for the rest of your life, which won't be long because you will kill yourself if you, if you are forced to do that. But we wanted, we had a very specific set of principles, a very specific set of ideas we wanted to be able to communicate. 
And there were lots of like-minded individuals. Uh, Jeff's presentation, by the way, I've seen variations of that presentation at the New York Yacht Club, online. I've seen him given, and now it always evolves, but the key thing about his presentation are data conclusion, data conclusion. Every single slide is, here's some, some actual financial, economic, fill-in-the-blank, uh, bond market data, and now let me see if I can explain what this means and what it might mean going forward. I'm going to cut you off there because I always find that interesting because that's what we strive to do. We mm-hmm. strive to say, look, we are data-dependent, you know, kind of like the Fed. Like the Fed. Except we actually do it. Right. Um, not, we'll see how they go. Uh, but that being said, I get accused a lot of times of going out there and using presentations that we're developing and being told, oh, but you're just talking your book. Right and well, which comes right. first? But but that's the thing. The book is positioned based upon based on this, right? It's, it's not, not like you're rationalizing after the fact, right? I think that's the problem that a lot of people say. Talking your book, you see the presentations we give; they're very macroeconomic oriented. They're right. saying this is why it's almost like you're running a bond portfolio. Almost, it's almost <laughs> like that, and it's amazing because like, well, you're talking your book. Guess what? Bonds don't go to infinity. Right, that's right. right. The good ones, they go to par. Right. right? You know, hey, so, congratulations. Oh, here's your money back. Hey, you know what? <laughs> we made it through that one again. Right? Oh, now what are we doing with the next set of money? So I, I find it interesting that you get accused of that. And I go, I, I remember being at some conference a few years ago, wanting to rip my nails out on a panel with some guy who just said, of course, you are talking your book. And I'm like, exactly. I turn to him and go, exactly. What do you do? Right. How do you invest then? Right. And he got offended. But I'm like, you're calling me out here. What are you, what are you an objective academic? Either you're a professor, in which case there is no book, other than the one you're trying to sell at Barnes & Noble, or you have, you know, it's a very much a chicken and egg issue. You have a philosophy. You have a process. You have specific assets that you hold. And now everything else you're doing at these events, let me communicate what we do and why we do it and how we do it. Of course, how else is it going to be? And I've always told people, we sell the intellectual capital. You don't have to understand the nuance. What we are here to do is get, make you comfortable. There is a narrative behind it. It's not a narrative. It's, it's not a false factual. narrative. It's not a false narrative. Right. It is data-driven. Um, and guess what? We do change our minds. Right. Right. And people say that, oh, you're bond folks. Um, we get bullish on stocks. You know, I, there are times. Sometimes we have a bearish tilt because we worry about the whole par thing. Right. You want your money right. back. Right. But that said, there's a price for everything. And so that's uh, exactly right. Money. That's exactly right. So, so before before we move on to the next question, I just have to say, you do anything 150 times. You do anything every week for a couple of years. Eventually, you get to be pretty good at it. Is and this this whole 10,000 hours to become a professional? Uh, so I love reading Malcolm Gladwell with the giant caveat slash footnote that a lot of his narratives are narratives based on data that doesn't necessarily hold up. The 10,000 hours thing. I, I know people who are not very athletically inclined that will not become right. a professional in anything Right, 10,000 hours of practice. So, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I'm also... From a mathematical world, mm-hmm. where what you try to do is give, you know, the you, you want to always object, the, you know, reject the hypothesis. So you find counterexamples, right. and so it, it's tough when someone pounds you with a narrative. It's like here's the glaring counterexample, right. right? The and and depending on which one you want to do. So I, I think the better definition is 
you have a pre-built genetic range of how fast you'll ever run or how good you'll ever be at X. Now, are you at the top of that range, in which case good on you, or are you, uh, you know, a lazy bum and you're at the bottom of the range and I don't want to be bothered? The more, uh, the old joke is, you know, it's amazing how the more effort I put into something, the luckier I get. There's, there's something to be said for, and when I started doing these with Bloomberg's, they're called intros and outros because they have a very, the first to, to get an hour of broadcast radio is 32 minutes plus traffic, weather, sports, news, etc. And so the first 32 minutes are very specific. This is seven and a half minutes. This is eight minutes. This is six minutes. This is 11.25. And you have to do an intro and an outro. I literally would come back the next day and read a script that I had to write because I could not keep it straight in my head. And now I could do it in my sleep. You're listening to Masters in Business on Blooming Radio. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Jeff Sherman talking about who, how difficult it is to hire people in the modern... Like, it's That's automatic. Famous. That's fake. Right. You're on the Sherman show. Right. Okay, don't keep trying to take credit for this. Okay? But, <laughs> but it took a long time to become not terrible at it. And I'm still That's not... That's different than becoming the professional, right? Or the quintessential thing. I, I mean, look, I, because you already have some form of skill set that mm-hmm. makes you predisposed to get... Maybe. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by lots of things. I'm intrigued. The world is really an amazing, fascinating place, assuming you're born in the right century, born in the right place, and not uh, have all sorts of unfortunate things come happen to you. There's a little bit about the genetic lottery that helps. There, there's certainly some of that. I will say, anytime I start to feel like, you know, I'm pretty good at this, Spend 20 minutes watching Tom Keen. So I record the tape. He's doing it live with the producer in year, counting down the commercials, doing bumpers. He's got 100 balls in the air, and he executes it flawlessly. And that's that's 100,000 hours of doing it. And, oh, my God, it, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is so fascinating because – the metacognition about any skill is the more skillful you are at something, the more you are aware of of your actual skill level. And people who aren't especially good at stuff are wholly oblivious to the yeah. fact that they suck. And I'm at the point where I'm skillful enough to know, gee, that guy is great, and I still have a long, long – I know I I'm, don't stink up the joint the way I did in the beginning – but I could see I'm only halfway through the journey to becoming. It always reminds me again of the old you know NPR thing of the lick will be gone right right where, where everybody's above average right, right? where and where the the what is it the women are strong the men are good looking and all the all, children are above, above average. average exactly so um, perhaps at the table today we have that you know with Barry Ritholz. Uh, but the thing is is that we have time constraints too so absolutely we don't have to answer to that regimen. But I do want Sam to introduce you to his favorite part of the show. Let's do it. That part of the show is called Sherman Says. I'm going to say a word, phrase, or term, and then it's a game of word association from you and Sherman with a one-word response. One word response. One yeah. word, maybe two. So we'll alternate. We'll start. No off. one's ever nailed just one word. So <laughs> really? Okay. Very difficult. <laughs> yeah. So if I can nail one word each time, that'll be a first. It will be a first. And All right. It's a better challenge. prize than we offer typically. Excellent. That's right. So we'll start off with Jeff Sherman with market timing. Are you going for the one word too? Is that why you're taking it? Yeah, market? exactly. I want to. <laughs> I want to say fruitless, but it's you have to be extremely skillful. 
So that was more than one. Yeah, word. That, that's the whole phrase I've already lost. Right. Fruitless. Fruitless. You had it. You yeah, nailed it, it and you true. talked your way out of the exactly. one word. Yeah. Barry, social media. Exploding. Geopolitics. Fruitless. <laughs> <laughs> ETF. Future. Recession. Imminent. Robo advisor. Imminent. Not really? imminent at some point in time. Not not, not eventual. Kind of How about eventual? eventual yeah. I'm editing his answer. So this is what I'm changing that writer. to well, eventual. You're a good writer. We're back on the masters right. and business. Show. Right. So this is the thing. When you're a good writer. You have a better vocabulary. Don't ask a mathematician to. I started out as a mathematician. I know that. Turns out I was a better writer. <laughs> so eventual. Robo advisor. Overhyped. Low volatility. Overhyped. Active ver- passive. Yes. Champagne. 2006. Kool-Aid. Drink it. And we're done. All right. So thanks, everybody. Thank you, Barry, for coming on our show. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, we take feedback at info at doubleline.com. The email address again is info at doubleline.com. If you want to uh, tell us what you liked about Barry, um, how much you enjoyed Sam's uh, questioning today, as he was very verbose himself, or even if you just want to talk to us about markets. Uh, Further to that, you can follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Overcast, um, whatever else is your favorite. Where your finer podcasts are found. Right, with all of them with the A-plus health rating. So again, thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll, we'll catch you at the next Sherman Show. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.